You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 2022 film, Devotion. So this is a movie that just came out, I would say, like three, four months ago. Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately, we're going to talk about it later on, but it did not do very well in theaters, so it's now out. But if you haven't seen it yet, which, considering its box office numbers, I don't think a lot of people have. Mm -hmm. So just, there's your spoiler warning. So this is a movie is a true story... Based on the relationship between uh, Jesse Brown and Tom Hudner, they were both naval air pilots during the Korean War. Mm-hmm. Jesse Brown was the first African American naval fighter pilot. And at the beginning of the film, they're both at the Quonset uh, Naval Air Station in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Hudner, Hudner's reporting there for his first day. Right. And he goes in, he's going into the locker room, and he hears something going on in the bathroom area. Somebody's, like, yelling or something. Yeah, but keep in mind, it's going to the locker room, and uh, there's nobody in there at yeah. the time, right? He just hears this voice, and it's, it's like, aggressively yelling. You can't really make out what's going on. Yeah. And uh, Jesse Brown sees there, and he's just by himself, and he kind of checks on him, says, is everything okay? Brown's you're not being rude, but he doesn't really want to talk to him. And eventually he meets him, he meets the other people in their crew, they fight the they fly Corsairs, even though this is the beginning of the jet uh, jet fighter age, they're flying, still flying the Corsairs. Yeah. And they're sort of working together a little bit, doing training exercises. Right, because the Corsairs being introduced here, and uh, beforehand they were familiar with another air, uh, um, aircraft, which in many ways was easier to fly and more forgiving. So they're having to put a great deal of training into uh, this unit. VF-32 is putting in a, a great deal of training on the Corsair because it's one big, nasty machine. Uh, uh, it's got a hell of a lot more horsepower and torque than uh, any other plane they've had experience with. And um, also it has, and I love the way they, they, they portray this and the effect it has on the... Uh, the men as they train it it has the unfortunate physical characteristic of making it impossible to kind of see where you're going uh, you can't look down the nose at this thing and see uh the airstrip you're landing on and in the in the case when they finish their uh, um, carrier qualifications that means when you're doing carrier qualifications you can't see that very small landing strip on the carrier there at the top of the carrier the flat top, right, that, that you're attempting to land on. This causes a great deal of stress, and that's why they're having to do so much training because this, this aircraft is actually quite different and a little bit dangerous when compared to others. Remember, you're landing on a carrier. It's not like a typical air base where you have a lot of landing strip. You just got a certain amount of time. If you don't time it perfectly, right, disaster could happen. Little or no room for error. Yes, <laughs> and... They go through training. They do a, a training flight together, and they buzz by one house. 
Yeah, this is great. So the thing you have to keep in mind here, uh, this is what I love about this film. Um, it, it just it just kind of explores interesting aspects of the relationships that develop in, in, in the military. So Jesse is not only black, but he's he's a he's an ensign. Hudner's a lieutenant, so uh, they have this very uh, 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 interesting situation when uh, Jesse takes him for his kind of get acquainted flight with this uh, this new uh, aircraft that he's kind of in charge. Rank doesn't matter, so mm-hmm. he says, "Are you ready to go go do a little uh, extracurricular activity?" <laughs> and, and Hudner doesn't know quite what to think. And really, before uh, he gets an answer, uh, uh, Jesse just peels off, and and they go off. I love this thing, and uh, you know they they climb, and, and Hunter's wondering what the hell's going on. And he's following him. He's having a hard time following him because the guy's such a good flyer, right? Mm-hmm. And you know he's trying to maintain position, not get too close, not get too far away, but also doesn't want to just peel off, chicken out, so to speak, right? So. He climbs and he's following, and then they dive and they go over this, they go over this uh, uh, house, and then at the appropriate time, pull up, you know, very quickly and violently. And Jesse's gone to all this trouble basically to wave to his wife (laughs) and kid at at the house, and and apparently it's been arranged that she would be out there waiting for him. And, and, And so they do this, and then Jesse goes. Hey, do you have any extracurriculars you need to do, Tom? As they yeah. head back, and Tom's just kind of a little bit flabbergasted and exhausted from trying to follow this expert flyer, and uh, <laughs> he says no when they go back. Yeah. I love that part of the and film. Later on, uh, Hudner gives Brown a ride home, and he sees, oh, now, now I know who who it was you were waving at. It was his wife, Daisy, and yeah. Um, the wife Daisy offers Hudner if he wants to come in, but Brown says no. He's busy. Don't worry. He's he's got to go. And so we see him and his wife. They're about to have a baby. Yeah. Or they already had it. Yeah. She, the she child her, is there. Okay. They've already. Yeah. They yeah. have a young baby. And he he tells her he doesn't quite have a read on Hudner yet. Right. Yeah. And that's why he didn't want him to come in. So you know, Jesse, you have to remember this is the 1950s. Uh, America is very much still segregated. So. Uh, uh, naturally, um, Jesse's a bit cagey with um, his peers. And so he doesn't quite have a read on Hudner yet. Um, but you see pretty quickly with the, the camaraderie between the, the men in this group that uh, the race plays no role at all. And it takes a while for Hudner to be integrated into that uh, unit's camaraderie. But um, Still, you know, that's always there. And, you know, they make a point of showing um, Daisy's interaction with a very unfriendly white neighbor. Uh, well, cold might be the better word. She just doesn't talk to her, right? Mm-hmm. So this is something, obviously, that they've had to deal with in the past. So they're making sure they set that up. And uh, if you're familiar with the book by Adam Makos, um, you can you can see further backstories with Daisy and Jesse that they've been put obviously been putting up for this their entire with this their entire lives. Um, there's a neat backstory with Jesse. He actually um, um, uh, 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 convinced uh, the the Ohio State University 
to allow him to attend there and actually uh, uh, did, because of the skill of his flying, uh, managed to convince people to let him uh, fly in the Navy and, and do the necessary training that was required for that because apparently he was quite intelligent. Quite intelligent. Um, they hint at this in the film. Um, he academically was just a whiz kid and um, um, was, uh, uh, for one thing, fluent in French, which came in awful handy later in the film, yeah, as, we um, as we saw. But unfortunately, in the film, you don't see that backstory. But he, he was, and, and they kind of downplayed a little bit. It says, oh, it was just high school French. Well, that's not quite true. Um, he, he, he took French at, at the Ohio State University mm-hmm. as well. And he, like I said, was fluent. And part of that was also the influences of his mother, who was quite intelligent as well. Yeah, and as we go on, I mean, at the beginning of the film, it hasn't happened yet, but 1950 is the beginning of the Korean War, and they are on the USS Lady, and they are now sent over to Korea to sort of determine the situation. Yeah. And one of the days while they're doing training exercises, um, Brown has to go around again. And yeah, basically, it was like something had like to make sure he gets the passing grade. I yeah, these are called carrier qualified qu- carrier quals, and they're uh, basically a testing procedure you have to go through before you can be in a carrier pilot. And uh, they uh, the point when the film again is building on the the unfamiliarity with the uh, Corsair and its its uh, power. Um, uh, I, I know I remembered a little earlier on when they're first introduced to it. Uh, one of the characters tells uh, the pilots, "Look, this thing's got some nasty torque. If you if you if you uh, throttle up too quickly, it literally will your your uh, your aircraft and the propellers will spin in opposite directions." Right. So they they have that warning, and then we see during the carrier quals. Not only does Jesse have to go back, go back around uh, and make a second attempt at it, which, by the way, I don't know if it's factually accurate. Apparently, he made five perfect landings. But in any case, so I'm not sure yeah. if that happened. We, we but, see when he's making that attempt, other yeah. African-Americans who are working below decks, like either maintenance or yeah. working, on, working engines or whatever on the ship, they're watching him because of this big social yeah. significance. And as the war is Starting, starting to go on, he's getting more recognition in the media about yeah. being the first African-American fighter pilot. And we should know, in World War II, the Army was still segregated. So if you think of somebody, something like the um, Tuskegee Airmen, yeah. that was still all African-American. They didn't have, it was, they were, didn't commingle with any white, other right. white squadrons. So, yep. But in this one, he's there. And there was, the one scene I, I appreciate is they're doing uh, like a Time magazine or something, a profile on him. And the press is specifically asking him, it's like, well, what racism have you faced? Tell us about the racism. Yeah. And he says, I'm not going to give you the questions you want to hear. Or the answers you want the to hear. The answers you yeah. want to hear. Yeah. And he's you can very, tell it makes him very uncomfortable. It makes him uncomfortable. And, uh, uh, you know, by this point in time, he's, I think, been very thoroughly imbued with the, uh, the, the unit-first way of thinking that uh, is at the core of military units. You think of your unit first, typically, and you don't want to hog the limelight, and you certainly don't want uh, people to see that uh, a 
perceive you as being a limelight hogger, right? Um, that's a good way to destroy unit cohesion. And he's aware of that, you know, and he doesn't want to be used as an example either by the press or anybody else. He just wants to be recognized for uh, his abilities, right? And not treated in any special way. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good part of that. And there, if you hop online, you can find the pictures from that that uh, that uh, photo shooting uh, session. As a matter of fact, and yeah. you can see that he looks a little bit uncomfortable with the, in the pictures that are just him alone. You know, kind of looking off into the to the distance with his leather jacket on and so forth. He looks like you know, okay, guys, I'll do this. You want to stage this, but. You can see it in his eyes. He's not comfortable with that. But the one picture he looks to be thoroughly comfortable with and um, um, in his element is one where he's walking along with a group of his fellow pilots from VF-32. They're all just yucking it up, smiling, laughing, talking. He's comfortable in that picture. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Eventually they do see time in combat and... When they, one of the things Brown does, which is a big heroic action, they have to take out a bridge. And I believe they only took out, like, there was two bridges, I forget, but they, yeah. can, they only, they couldn't get the second part. Yeah, there's, it's a two span bridge. Yeah. Right. Uh, apparently, one span goes one direction, one goes the other, and it spans the uh, border between China and, uh, and Korea. And China's firing on them, but yes. they cannot fire back because if they do, they could start World War Three, and yeah. if anybody knows what MacArthur was doing at that time, it was very close. We yeah. were very close to starting a third World War. But I'm, I'm glad they put that in because that was kind of a, a very frustrating feature for uh, bombers and bomber pilots and fighter pilots uh, during uh, during the Vietnam conflict. This is much more of a, a high profile irritant for them. Because uh, in that particular war, there were a lot of targets were simply off limits. No matter how strategically important they might be, they were simply not allowed to hit those targets uh, uh, when uh, people in theater were given the uh, uh, flexibility to pick targets. Very often they weren't. Very very often the targets were picked in Washington for them by LBJ and his cabinet. Um, But... We forget, and for similar reasons. We're, we're worried that it might uh, um, uh, tick off the Russians or the Chinese, who obviously were helping uh, the North Vietnamese in that war. But we see that this was also a concern <laughs> during the Korean War. And so you have this maddening situation for these guys, very dangerous situation, where because the uh, any aircraft fire is coming from the Chinese side of the Yalu River, they cannot... Uh, in any way, fire missiles or do any kind of suppressive measures against that fire. So they're they're flying at relatively slow speeds because they're trying to bomb this pi- uh, bridge through this hail of uh, 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 anti-aircraft fire. And uh, I'm glad they included that in there because it's kind of a precursor of things to come. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, because they have to retreat because of the anti-aircraft fire. But Brown goes back anyway and is able to take it out. And in, the, his, in Hudner's report, he praises Brown, but he also says he should have listened to orders. Yes. 
And um, Brown says to him, why did you put that there? And he says, well, what I said was true. I mean, I did go out of my way to point out the bravery, which you did. So I, but he said, you still disobeyed my orders technically. And he says, well, that's going to hurt me because they're going to, even with the actions, they're going to be harder on me and it'd be harder for me to get promotions because they'll always use that as an excuse. And they're trying, Brown, uh, Hudner is trying to, you know, sort of make up for that. But then they go into a, then it leads into the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir, which is probably the most famous battle of the Korean War. Yeah. And while they're over there, Brown's plane gets shot down. Yes. And he can't get out. He's not being able to get out of his plane. So Hudner crashes his own plane, even though he's not told not to do that. Mm-hmm. Crashes his own plane next to him, tries to get it open, does everything he can, but he can't. At the end, yeah. he just can't get it out, and they have to... They have to leave leave him there, and Brown tells him, "Just leave me. I can't. You, you did everything you can." Yes. And then it comes to the very end. Um, several months later, Hudner is given a Medal of Honor for his actions. They've never been able to f- recover uh, Brown's body from the North Korean side. Yes. And he f- talks to Daisy because Daisy before the war, right before the war, Daisy talked to him and said, "Make sure you look after him. Make sure you protect him." And Hudner feels he apologizes to her he says i didn't you know i did i couldn't live up to your promise and she said no you did you didn't have to save him you just looked out for him and yeah it's sort of a reconciliation and that's the way the movie ends and it, it's a this is a good movie i think we both like it it's it's a shame though because this looking at the, we saw this in theaters actually yeah opening week yeah but box office is just 21 million against believe, a budget of 80 80 so yeah, yeah. i mean even it's not just a loss of 60 60 million add in marketing that's probably closer to 140 million loss yeah, yeah. so it's probably one of the biggest flops of the year as far as financial wise yes and it's it's a I, shame yeah what i liked about this movie is when you think of movies set during this time with you know racial tensions really high it's still segregation yeah i mean just a couple years ago he had green book win best picture or another best picture when they're driving Miss Daisy. Mm-hmm. Between, you know, it's always the white guy who's the main character, and he's prejudiced. Another one was Cry Freedom about uh, in South Africa. The white guy's sort of prejudiced, or he's uneducated about what's going on, and he befriends a black person, and then he learns, and he becomes better. The main thing is, it's the white guy who has to learn. Yeah. What's interesting with this one, Hudner and Brown get off pretty well there's a little bit of differences but there's no racism with hunter they just yeah. they're just good friends they're good friends he, he the primary difference i think between them is uh i think expressed a couple of times uh by jesse uh it's not necessarily a racial distinction it's 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 kind of a uh a, a, a cultural distinction if you will between uh, aviators that have come up through um, uh, uh, NROTC routes or, or things like that, uh, um, uh, uh, officer candidate school routes, that kind of thing, and guys that have assessed through the Naval Academy. And uh, it's it's interesting. They, he makes a point of taking little jab, or Jesse does, takes a little jabs at Hudner as Mr. Academy. I think that's actually what he calls him, yeah. right? And there, um, Hudner had that because I believe Hudner was talking about how 
he graduated mm-hmm. like right as World War Two ended. Yes. So he has this feeling of he never got to just, experience what other people his age yeah. got to experience because he just missed we it. Just missed it. Yeah. Exactly right. Um, but it, it gets back to I think um, uh, I, I think that that scene after the. Um, uh, Jesse does the second pass on the successfully does the second pass at great peril on that bridge and knocks it out that second span of that bridge it get gets back to uh, that dis- that discussion they have about the impact of the fitness report the after action report it's one or the other or both I can't remember um, that Hudner feels like he has to he has to file it you know, this is drummed into people's heads when they are um, at the academy. You know, when you do fitness reports, you have to be brutally honest, tell what all the facts are, right? Um, yes, you can explain extenuating circumstances and so forth, but it's very important that uh, if somebody basically disobeys an order, you have to report that. So he feels like he has to do that. It's part of his job. Um, he can't just leave it out. Uh, but he he's he is aware to some extent, but not I think to a great extent. Maybe because he's so used to that kind of cloistered environment where everybody uh, everybody kind of knows what those expectations are, and everybody is more or less on a plane in terms of being peers at the Naval Academy. Right? He's kind of used to that, so he has a little bit of an inkling of what kind of impact it might have on Jesse uh, because of his color. Um, but Jesse feels like you really do not understand the large impact this, this can have on me. It can literally stop my career in its tracks, right? And he tries to get that across to him. Hudner realizes, oh, you know what? You're right. So what does he try to do? Uh, nobly, he goes to all the other guys in the unit, right? The guys that would know best that had flown on that same mission and gets them to write, as it were, character references for Jesse and also point out that, you know, he did, after all, uh, ultimately, uh, he was the one guy that ultimately successfully carried out the mission. Because at best, we would have only taken out one of the spans. He got the second one. That's exactly what we wanted. That is going to at least temporarily temporarily stop the flow of men and material from China into North Korea, right? So that's what we want. So he comes back to him with that paperwork, said, look, I'm going to be, I'm going to give this to the CO. I'm going to, I'm going to, and Jesse's going, that may make no, absolutely no difference at all. You should realize that, right? So again, it's that kind of the uh, clash between the, uh, the messy world of the war, uh, world outside the academy, so to speak, with the less messy uh, world inside the academy. I think that's more of the clash between the two characters mm-hmm. than race. And it, it's actually refreshing that it isn't one of these. Oh, he learns his lesson on race so much as yeah, it's because it's with those movies. It's just the lesson that racism is bad segregation yeah. is bad and right. it's, that's not you're not teaching us anything new at least no. you know people who already know that should already know that yeah is if people who don't know that they're they're not going to change their minds yeah 
And, and you know, it, it has that element up uh, to it, of, of course. But the main thrust of the film isn't that message. Mm -hmm. It's the message of, hey, look what what this kind of uh, adversity and dealing with it on a lifetime basis ends up doing in terms of formation of grit, resilience, and character in the person of Jesse Brown. And look how he does not uh, take what he has lived through in his life and use it as an excuse to become a passive victim, right? You see, he even takes his memories of the racial abuse he does, and he uses it as a motivator. He gets in that mirror, and he looks at himself, and he kind of somehow or another elicits that hatred that was uh, expressed toward him. And you see the, t the guy, that, this actor's fabulous, by the way. Um, you know, the tears are rolling down. It's anger. It's, it's uh, a sense of woundedness. But then he takes that. You can kind of see that he uh, almost internalizes it as a kind of fuel. And then he straightens up a bit in front of that mirror. And he says, now I'm ready. I could go out and do my job, whether it's doing the quals, doing the bombing run or whatever. And he does that more than once. Um, it's interesting. It's a, an element in the film I think they've expanded upon that's in the book. As far as I recall in the book... Uh, young Jesse does this as a child and a teenager uh, at home, in front of his mirror at home. But I don't think there is anything explicitly in the book about him actually having done this uh, uh, at Ohio State or uh, in, in uh, during uh, training in Florida or uh, on the carriers. But it's very effective. Again, it's it's a portrait of this character taking what's given to him by the world and turning it into not only grit and resilience, but motivation and a tool to acquire an incredible skill. And what, what is, what I do appreciate about this movie, because when you think about this, you could think of other similar films. Mainly there were two films about the Tuskegee Airmen. One was in the nineties with HBO as Lawrence Fishburne was the star, but then one, like, ten years ago was produced by George Lucas. And you also could think of the Jackie Robinson movie. And what's interesting is what I do like about this movie, where, yes, you obviously have to show the prejudice and racism. I mean, to act like it didn't happen would just be wrong. Yeah. But it doesn't, I think even the director, J.D. Dillard, even said, I didn't want to go over that, make it exploitive, where it's just every other, you know, yeah. every other scene, there's somebody's calling him the N-word or right. something. And that's what I appreciate because if you do know him as a person, you have that camaraderie with him and Powell. You have that scene when he's going to they stop at Con and he's going. He he finds he speaks French. They even run into Elizabeth Taylor, yeah. you know, <laughs> probably after one of her five hundred marriages or something. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you you see, get to know him as a person, and it makes me think of. I read a book recently about the history of Dallas pro football, particularly the early days of the Cowboys and the Texans, who later became the Chiefs. Yeah, and with the Dallas Texans, there was a player named Abner Haynes, who's a running back. He was probably the first like big pro. African-American pro football star in Dallas. Yeah. 
And I think one of the things he says is when people ask me about my playing days, because he was on the team that won the championship and everything, he says more people focus on, you know, what racism I had to endure than, you know, actually my career as a football player. Yeah. And I think it, it makes me think of sometimes how white people want to hear about those stories, not just because like a sick thrill, but just makes them feel better about themselves. Like, oh, I would never do something like that. I would yeah. never hurl racial insults. So that means I'm a much better person because I would never do something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think there's certainly that element there. It's interesting you bring that up uh, about the uh, AFL champion, 1962, Dallas Texans. Um, and similar stories were told by guys that were on the Cowboys, too. And um, um, how, yes, you know, there was racism in Dallas, but um, very often they found that um, uh, that's all that people wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm, and, exactly. and they were not interested in talking about that. And in fact, a lot of the people they would meet that were, as it were, out there in the great white world right around dallas actually were more accepting of them than you would expect and quite willing to have conversations about the football and about uh you know what car you're gonna buy or just regular stuff like that and i think that comes comes across i think you're right in this film quite well because in this unit vf32 uh they're just all hey we're all peers <laughs> interestingly even though there are differences of rank but that's what happens in military units there's a there's the rank is there but there's also that camaraderie that develops and, that, and they, those lines between you know prejudice start to they just disappear they become irrelevant they become yeah. irrelevant and uh they do that a very good job of showing that uh in the con uh in the in, in the con section of the film where you know there are these hilarious scenes where these guys are going to after having been invited by Elizabeth Taylor they go they go to the casino right and um, they manage to get in because Jesse can speak French to the the two obnoxious guards that don't want to let him in right yes. but he, he he manages to uh, get the unit in uh, they have a great time gambling talking with Elizabeth Taylor and so forth they do run into those Marines who are being a little difficult but uh, then they go off to some other party and you know the camaraderie really develops so you, you see a coalition of that co coalescing of that unit and um, a thing I think the film ends up doing I don't know if it's quite on purpose but very effectively is uh, you're really starting to get into these characters and feel for them and, and feel that camaraderie and, and the connections they have with one another. And then they go off to combat and they do this and the same thing is occurring there. And you, you see the loss they feel during, uh, if, if somebody shot down or if they crashed during qualls, whatever. And you're really starting to ease into that and settle into that and then just one slight contingency happens. You know, they finish this mission. They're on their way back. They think they're clear of any uh, dangerous anti-aircraft fire. They fly over this area. The film does a good job of this. And there are some Chinese down there with rifles. That's all they have. Unexpected. So one of them starts shooting at the aircraft. And they hit Jesse's plane just at a critical weak joint where it hits 
the oil supply, right? And one of the other guys say, hey, Jesse, I think you're leaking fuel. And he says, no, it's not fuel, it's oil, which is worse than fuel. Because if oil's leaking, your, your, your engine's going to seize up pretty quick. So he realizes that. And all of a sudden, when this happens, I, I, I had that experience, even though I knew the story, right? I uh, had that experience as, oh, my God, he's within minutes of leaving us, literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that camaraderie, the loss, really presents itself to you as a result. And that's what lends what Hudner did so much power. He doesn't want to lose him, right? He goes down right next to him at great peril to himself because Jesse was pinned in that aircraft due to his crash. Hudner very well could have been too or killed. Not to mention that the Chinese are in the, va- uh, in the area. And what they don't show in the film I was a little disappointed with is the helicopter pilot, who did know Jesse, that's accurate, um, does come out. And he and Hudner spent 45 minutes hacking away at that aircraft with a with an axe, trying to futilely, because the, the axe isn't strong enough to cut through the metal, to get him out of there. And then they have to leave. Jesse's not quite dead yet, but he's very close. Right? And they get the last line right. Please tell Daisy I love her. Um, but he had, he had, his head had slumped down on the plane in, in the real case and the, the cold had really started to get to him. Hudner still didn't want to leave and he had to make that painful choice. Do I stay? Helicopter said, if you, pilot said, if you stay, you will die because it will be too long before the other guys get here. Plus the Chinese are just over the hill. So he had to make that difficult choice and he felt guilty about it. Right, and it bothered him for the rest of his life. Um, he kept kind of a in his own home, kind of a shrine to Jesse in his uh, in his kind of den, right? And he'd always talk about him uh, until late in his life, mm-hmm. and it lived with him forever. Um, but it also created a deep connection between him and Daisy and their two families. And uh, that's a great story. He went back to Korea in 2013, attempting, against all hope, to find remains. Because um, what, what they didn't tell you in the story is uh, the uh, command on the Leyte decide, uh, decided that you could not let the Corsair fall into enemy hands. So they gave him uh, kind of what in effect is kind of a Viking funeral. They, they shot napalm over the two planes. So that meant Jesse was in that plane when the napalm hit. Uh, Hudner, though, hoped against hope that maybe if he went back and he talked to the North Vietnamese, uh, or sorry, North Korean um, government, that they would allow either him to search or they would do it themselves. Um, apparently they did, but they were not able to find anything. So it, it sat with him the rest of his life, right? So that sense of loss i think they very effectively portray at the end of that film it's like oh no it can't stop now this friendship is just really starting to develop and now it's gone that's the nature of military service in war you don't know when it's going to stop yeah that's one of the things i do want to get to in this film is either there 
there was even a great attempt to fly actual planes. It's not yes. just all CGI. It's not CGI. I mean, yeah. the one thing that one film that kept popping in my head was the way that battle sequences are shot is Dunkirk, which was a World War II film, but which comes back to we've this is the third film we've done about the Korean War. We did the Iraq a couple months ago, yeah, and then um, the steel helmet waves back. And one thing I always bring up is you like you see hundreds of movies about World War Two. You see movies about Vietnam, even though I feel that that's kind of died down lately. But seventies, eighties, that was yeah. there was tons of Vietnam War movies. And you see, you know, you've seen recently films about the Gulf Wars, but you don't see a lot of films about Korea. When I when I because I was familiar with the story because I had read Hampton Side's book on uh, Desperate Ground about the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir, and he. Yeah. dedicates a chapter or two to this story yeah and i was excited for this i was like wow they're finally gonna it's a big budget movie you got pretty big name stars in this yeah and it just bombed and it's it, you contrast it with because the star man who plays thomas hudner is glenn powell mm-hmm. glenn powell interesting enough played john glenn in a movie hidden figures about the african-american women who worked at nasa in the early 60s yeah but he was also an aviator in the biggest hit movie of this year, Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> That's right. It's the, it's, I, think, I think now at the new Avatar surpassed it. It's the second highest grossing film of the year. It grossed $2 billion. billion. Dollars. It's amazing. It's, no, it's nominated for Best Picture, a Top Gun movie being nominated. So he was, you know, he's doing the same thing. Jonathan Majors plays Jesse Brown. He's going to be the new villain in the next Ant-Man movie. But, you know, he was in, he's been in a lot of good stuff like yeah. Last Black Man in San Francisco. You have these great stars, and it just and didn't. It, it, it wasn't a magnet. I, now, I why just, is that? Uh, is that the, is that that is the sixty four thousand dollar question? Just, like Dunkirk made a ton of money. Yeah, and you feel like I know it's it's a comic book cr- movie crazy world out there, but I, it feels sad because what is Korea, what's the slogan for Korea? The, the forgotten, forgotten war, war. And, and this unfortunately solidifies that. And I just feel that's such a shame. It, so getting close to the end of my questions here, anything else you want to bring up? I just wanted to say, if you've seen Top Gun Maverick, because I remember that movie spread like wildfire. Every People who don't even really care that much for movies are saying, I saw that movie in theaters and it blew me away. If you've seen Top Gun Maverick, especially you like Glenn Powell in that movie, go see this movie, please. Like, yes. it's, it's too late in theaters, but I'm sure whatever streaming service is on, just give it the clicks because it deserves it. It deserves it, It's and it's a real-life story. And like There's I no said... no Tom Cruise in this movie. No, and the attention to detail is incredible. Um, I'm, I was blown away by uh, the fact that they managed to find enough Corsairs and that old helicopter to uh, use in the film. And just that, that one scene where... Or one of the guys in VF-32 during the uh, uh, carrier qualls um, hits that throttle too hard. They go to the pains of showing that airplane start to spin because he did it too quickly and then plunges into the ocean. Just that little detail. Just absolutely. And like I said, the late T looks exactly like the late T from the 50s. Yeah, go see this film. It's outstanding. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. You can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics on the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. 
If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, where each episode is dedicated to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. Thank you.